Hi, and welcome to the new Imperial Chemical Engineering podcast, where we talk to researchers across the department about their work. I'm Sarah, and I'm the communications manager for the department. And I'm Ben, and I'm a PhD student in the department. Today, we're talking to Anouk Lamit. She's a researcher in the group of Professor Camille Petit, and we're going to talk to her about her research into materials. Hi, I'm Anouk Lermit. I'm a final year PhD student in the Department of Chemical Engineering, um, and I'm also affiliated with the Department of Materials at Imperial. And I guess I will talk more about that soon, but uh, I've been working on adsorption, which is a way to reduce uh, CO2 emissions and pollution. So we're going to keep it nice and easy to start, a bit of background on you. So could you tell us a bit about where you studied before you came to Imperial? I guess I have not the most like usual path into a PhD, but I, I started my studies in France, where I'm originally from, as you can guess. I did my master's degree in uh, physics and chemistry in a French engineering school called ESPCI uh, in Paris. And then uh, I did my uh, last year of this degree uh, in the UK at the University of Cambridge in chemical engineering. And then I actually didn't do the PhD straight away, but I worked in industry for two years in the food industry. I was like a biscuit scientist. And after that, that's when I started my PhD here uh, at Imperial in a completely different field from uh, the biscuit industry. I've got to ask, what did it involve being a biscuit scientist? <laughs> yeah, a lot of resampling of uh, products. <laughs> uh, no, but more seriously, I was looking a lot at the ingredients used in the products and how changing the recipes could impact on not only the flavor, but also the texture, the color, the density, like lots of properties of the biscuits. Yeah, it was quite interesting. Uh, lots of actual baking, but in like a pilot plant setting. Yeah, lots of tasting as well. That's true. What a job. <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. <laughs> that was fun. The smell yes. must have been amazing. Yeah, yeah. You're basically a professional <laughs> chef. Yeah. Come scientist. Yeah, that's amazing. I didn't know such a thing existed. No, me neither. We've yeah. blown our minds already. Yeah. <laughs> so you've already sort of touched on this, but could you expand a bit further about your exact journey to Imperial? I first did my uh, engineering degree in France. Uh, like I mentioned, it's like engineering, but a bit different from how it is studied in the UK, I guess. It's more broad, so I was doing a lot of physics, chemistry, also biology, mathematics. Not so much like engineering in the sense of like process engineering or even chemical engineering. It was more like fundamental maybe and with a lot of lab work. Uh, so that was really cool. And then for the last year, I had to choose what I would do, which had to be outside my engineering school. So that's when I moved to the UK. And so I was in the master's program of chemical engineering, but there were also lots of uh, business classes that I could take, which was quite new to me and quite interesting. Uh, so that, yeah, that was in Cambridge. Uh, and then I didn't want to do a PhD, although many people from my engineering school would actually go on doing a PhD. But that's when I started working in the food industry. And that was really interesting, really cool. But I think after yeah, about a year and a half, I wanted to focus more on something linked to renewable energies, the environment. And that's when I started looking for a new job. And this PhD opportunity also came up uh, in London. And it kind of went really fast. Yeah, because I think I applied in 
April or May and started in October, which I think is quite fast with the UK process. So yes, I think just opportunities came up and I hadn't really planned far ahead what I would do, but I've had no regrets so far. So very happy to be doing the PhD. Can I ask, how did you find the move to the UK? I think it could have been quite overwhelming at first because also like my English was very like kind of this, the, the English student at school which is like, you know, you're like a good student in English and you're like, yeah, I'll be fine. And then you arrive and people have like all these accents and I was really struggling with understanding people. So it took me a bit of time, but also it was like London. It's so international. I ended up meeting people from everywhere who were also like, whose English was also not their first language. So it actually went pretty easily. And yeah, in the end, it was like a very nice experience from the start. But I think, yeah, living in Cambridge is a bit like, being in London, I think it's very, it's so international. So I don't think it can compare to other places in the UK. Mm-hmm. So I never felt like out of place. I feel like we were all like coming from somewhere else anyway. So yeah, and then I, I was only going for one year and here I am like seven years later still in the UK. So it went pretty well. So onto the research side of things. In a few sentences, can you tell me about your research? So first of all, I'm working only in the lab. I'm not a computational person. And I work on adsorbent materials, which are very porous materials, kind of like sponges, but at a much smaller scale, that can separate molecules based on their size or chemistry. So that could be gas or liquid uh, molecules. And so in my case, I'm working on one specific material, which is called porous boron nitride. So it's material made of boron and nitrogen atoms. And it's very porous, like I said. And I'm working really on the material level where I look at uh, its chemistry, its stability, its structure. And later on in my PhD, I started looking as well as ap- uh, at applications where it could be used. So it can be used, for example, for CO2 capture, which is quite a key topic nowadays. But it could also be used for uh, liquid separations. Uh, for example, you could imagine it could absorb and capture pollutants in a water stream. So yes, I've been really working on the material, material itself rather than like looking at all the applications possible. And I think that's why I'm also linked to the Department of Materials. Uh, so doing lots of synthesis, lots of characterization of the materials, and now looking more at the application side. And that's also why I'm doing my placement now in Canada, looking more at a specific application using my material. Can you tell me what the difference is between adsorption, AD, and absorption, AB? Yes, actually, that's something like I didn't really realize like before my studies. Adsorption is when the molecules are, let's say, captured uh, on the surface of your material, whereas absorption would be in the volume, in the bulk of the material. So it's this difference between volume and surface. I think you've, you've done a pretty nice job at explaining that simply. What does this mean for, for a bigger picture? Why should we care about materials that absorb or absorb things? So in the context of reducing uh, pollution and uh, CO2 emissions uh, in industry, there are several technologies that can be used. And I think it's good as well. We don't want to focus on one technology only. We want like a range of methods and technologies that can work together to contribute to reducing CO2 emissions. 
So adsorption is a good process for that because it's quite versatile. Like depending on the material you can use, you will be able to target different applications. So I've mentioned CO2 capture, but uh, you can also use adsorption for hydrogen storage, for example, or like I said, like water treatment. So that really depends on the material you select. And because, well, there are so many materials, like you can uh, synthesize the materials as you want, play with their structure, chemistry, and depending on the materials you can use, you obviously want, if possible, to have it quite cheap as well to make. So I think that's obviously a key when you want to scale up because we're working in the lab here, but in the end, we obviously want to use the materials at larger scale for actual uh, industry. So you want something that's also quite cheap to produce. And you also want materials that are not toxic. So yeah, I think the best thing about adsorption and adsorbent materials, it's because it's such a vast area and there's so much you can do and make that you always have something for a specific application and then you can tune it depending on your needs. So can I ask, this is maybe a really naive question. So sort of two questions. When the, they say you absorb carbon dioxide, is it, is it absorbed or adsorbed forever? Is it in the material forever or can it be re-released? That's a very good question. So in my work, I'm really working on absorbing uh, CO2 now, but then you, of course you want to do something with it. So for example, some people in my group are working on photocatalysis where they'll use also adsorbent materials, but they'll try to make the gases they absorb with light to produce something else. So there would be different ways of making your product, the chemical you absorb, react and be transformed into something else that's not nasty anymore, let's say. There's also a big area which is CO2 sequestration, where people will want to put the CO2 like underground and store it for long term, very, very long term. So yes, yeah, so in my case, I'm not really working on that. Other people are doing that. But what I do if when I adsorb CO2 with my materials, I would regenerate my materials, usually by heating them up at high temperature to dissolve the CO2. But I'm not actually doing anything with it. I'm just releasing it. But obviously, we're working at this small concentration and for research purpose. But uh... You've answered my second question, which was, what do we do with the material when it's absorbed all the carbon dioxide? But I guess some people just bury it in the ground. Some people work on that in the department as well, actually. Mm-hmm. Good question, though, because sometimes you might bury it in the ground, but then in other situations, is it kind of like a renewable resource where you can use it to adsorb something, do something with that adsorbed material, and then reuse the material again to adsorb something else? Yes, like with my material as well, you want to usually use it in cycles. So you want to adsorb and then you dissolve it. And then some other people will work on what to do with the CO2, for example, you dissolve. Uh, I'm not working on that. Uh, And then you can adsorb again. Uh, So one key thing here is that you want your material to be stable. And that's something I've been working on. Because you can imagine if your adsorbent reacts with the molecules you are adsorbing, if its structure changes, it might not be able to adsorb as much in the next cycles. So it's very important to consider stability as well. I think one thing I can mention is lots of materials would degrade with water and or like even like water vapor and there's always some moisture in the environment. So that can be an issue for a lot of materials when they degrade a bit with moisture over time and then their adsorption performance decreases over time. So there is also lot of lots of work on how to make the materials more stable so you can use them almost indefinitely for adsorption desorption cycles. If I had a piece of one of these materials in the room with me now, would it start absorbing, say, carbon dioxide out of the air? Or do you need to do something? Does there need to be special conditions for it to absorb or adsorb the gas? I guess, I mean, it could start adsorbing, but you can play 
depending on the temperature, temperature is a big uh, parameter that will impact on your adsorption, the pressure as well. So there are like, there's a set of conditions usually that you have to use. You will also want to control the flow and quantity of gas you actually kind of inject uh, into your adsorbent. Because you can imagine the adsorbents are, for example, they're used in like what we call like a packed bed. So you would have like kind of a small cell, like a small cylinder where you would pack your material, uh, your solid, and then you would inject the gas that stream inside that cell, uh, which usually is a mixture of gases. And you want your material, for example, to capture only CO2, but let the other gas, that might be nitrogen, which is not a bad uh, thing, just to go through. So yes, there are like parameters to consider to kind of optimize the performance of absorption. I'm trying to picture this, and I'm kind of imagining like a gray kind of like pumice stone material. What, what does it look like when you're working with it? Mine is one type of material. Mine is um, a white powder, like, well, flaky mixtures, like small flakes, uh, but it's white in color. But you would have very different types of materials. Like some people in my group would work on other adsorbent materials and they would have uh, very nice colors, like pink, blue. <laughs> it really depends on the chemicals, basically, they, that are in the materials. I only have boron and nitrogen and, and a bit of oxygen. And that gives me a white compound, which is not as nice, but <laughs> it does the job. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, not what I was picturing no, at all, actually. Little stone. <laughs> yeah, 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 gray yeah. stone. Yeah. Well, you can, like, after that, I also try sometimes to structure my material. So I might compress it to make more like pellets. But as a way I synthesize it, it's, I obtain it like that. But then there would be different methods of synthesizing it. And some people might obtain more like kind of small granules or pellets. Yeah. It's very, very versatile. There are many, many ways of producing them. Why do you think this is an important field of research? Uh, like I mentioned before, I think for uh, reducing CO2 emissions and contributing to fighting climate change uh, globally, we need lots of technologies to work on that, and adsorption is one of them. Uh, so I think we need to come up with um, yeah, materials that are both efficient, but also easy and cheap to produce and scale up. I think it's also very important to have people kind of collaborate and like come together to work uh, together, because I think if we all go in very, very different directions like it's very good at first of course to like explore what's possible but then i think it's also good to have people like kind of yeah work together to like bring something to a more advanced stage and eventually even like scale up the material so it can actually be used in real life so i think that's why it's important for the actual end goal of reducing co2 emissions and the science is really cool as well we talked a lot about the opportunities in this field what about the challenges like what do you see as the biggest challenges one of the main challenges is to have researchers collaborate more and work together because I think there's a lot done in the field and you would know more with the, the publications in journals uh, at conferences. And I think that's very important because you don't want a lot of people, you know, working on the exact same thing. But then if it, people were working together, you know, it would save time and resources. So I think one of the main challenges is really like um, communication, which obviously was a bit harder during the pandemic as well. You know, I mean, labs were closed. There was not that many conferences anymore. Uh, but now it's picking up again, and I think it's really important. Uh, so I think that's the main challenge, kind of keep people up to date of what's going on in the field to then advance better and faster, I guess. And I guess something, as I mentioned, would be like specifically for the material side, the cost is a challenge because you can have some very 
very nice aluminum materials, but which would be very costly to produce. And if it's already quite costly to do at lab scale, you can imagine at industrial scale, the industrial people would be like, it looks great, but it's too expensive. We can't make that. So I think cost is an issue, like a challenge, but like it is for many other fields, I think. So you talked about having to better communicate this sort of research with the public so, so, so they understand it better and understand the importance of the funding and also communicating it to government. So what do you think is the best or most effective way you can communicate your research either to the public or to, to stakeholders in governments and companies? There's communication in your area, so at conferences, but it's usually more people who are also like academics, for example. But I think there are also lots of industrial people now that attend conferences. So I think it's really good to interact with them more because they have kind of a different perspective and I guess different ways of making things happen when they work in big companies. So I think that's one way is like to have academics interact more with industrial teams. And for the government, I think more and more people after like either undergrad, masters or PhDs go into uh, working in science policy with the government or companies. And I think that's really important as well to have uh, people who really know the science, but can also kind of impact on uh, policies and what the government should invest on. But I think there's a big, big shift now where lots of people actually move into these kind of jobs. I think it's still quite slow like to have an impact on the actual like government uh, work but i think it's getting there so i think that's very encouraging to see that why do you think that ordinary non-science people should be interested in what you're working on i think if we realize that a lot of technologies are actually used or could be used in setups that we interact with every day it would have a bigger impact uh, for example, for like energy storage, that can be used for like heating your home, basically. So that's something you obviously want, uh, especially in winter. So I think it can be interesting to know how the science is working, you know, to heat your room, for example. Or for applications such as water treatments, it's obviously also something that, you know, people want to have like clean water. So yes, I think that's interesting to know how this can be done. And regarding CO2 emissions, for example, that's, I think people are more and more aware of climate change and ways of limiting global warming. So I think that's something people should be interested in. There's obviously also a lot of other things in the world to be interested in. So I wouldn't necessarily tell people like, look at what I'm doing. It's the most important thing in the world. But I think it's good to have an awareness of it and understand what's at play. Definitely. And I think we talk a lot about kind of climate anxiety too and not kind of you know people being a bit overwhelmed and thinking oh there's not much we can do but actually maybe it's there's an element where it's it's actually quite reassuring for people to kind of be aware of the science that's going on technologies that might be available you know even if it's not something that they can as an individual impact on um, but that they know that you know there are people out there kind of thinking about these these kind of global challenges and trying to address them yeah yes definitely no i think that ended up quite nicely. Yeah. Okay. What, what a nice little outro. Actually. <laughs> it's <laughs> all about the global challenges. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I do have one more question, mm-hmm. just just briefly in the last few minutes. Um, have you got any time for sightseeing while you're in Canada? Have you got any trips planned? Uh, yes, I really like explore a bit on the weekends. Um, yes, definitely. I've never. It's my first time in Canada, so I will take the opportunity to discover the main cities around here and yeah, the nature as well which looks amazing, especially in autumn with the leaves, the nice colours. One final question for you, Anouk. If people want to find out more about um, their work, like where can they find you? Where can they follow you? 
so within Imperial, uh, I'm always uh, reachable by email, of course, uh, in person as well. And there are quite a lot when I'm not in Canada. But otherwise, I'm yeah, I'm on Twitter and on LinkedIn. And I think yeah, I'm very easy to find because my first name and last name are not that common. So I'm very easy to find. <laughs> so I, I guess all that's left to say is thank you, Anouk. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been a very interesting interview. Yeah, yeah, it's been great. Um... Thank, Thank you for speaking you to us all the way from Canada. Yeah, 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 and enjoy your time there. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, have a great time. Enjoy it. Thank you.